the whole business model of social media is manipulation. And that's what's so fascinating is that it's basically a grand, an experiment on a grand scale that's never really been attempted before in kind of the history of humanity of unleashing these equations that are basically playing chess against your mind to keep you plugged in. So, episode 31, and it's an exciting one, as I spoke to Danny Fortson, the technology correspondent for the Sunday Times newspaper. Danny has worked at the Sunday Times since 2008 and launched his podcast, Danny in the Valley, in 2017, which is one of the best podcasts I've listened to. I highly recommend it if you're interested in technology, the world of Silicon Valley, and dare I say it, the future of humanity, because sometimes it gets pretty deep, as Danny explains today. Given that we've now also produced over 30 episodes, I thought I'd quickly talk about the aims of the podcast and how I'm looking to improve it. The overarching aim is to learn from the experiences and stories of others. In doing that, people can find opportunities. Every guest on this podcast has, in my opinion at least, had an interesting career. So listening to the benefit of their experience will help you plan your own next move, whatever that may be. Opportunities have also arisen uh, from guests getting in touch with one another and from listeners getting in touch with guests, which is great. We've started work on a new website to support the podcast. It will have similar aims, interesting content, which enables opportunities for people to make progress, whether from a professional perspective or otherwise. So in this episode, Danny talks us through how he got into journalism. Uh, He also talks through the current situation with TikTok versus the US government, the impact social media is having on society, politics and children. And he also talks us through Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk's shared objective of colonizing outer space, as well as Mark Zuckerberg announcing he plans to eradicate all disease. I hope you enjoy the podcast and as ever, find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at the Watchword Podcast. We were just talking offline, and you were saying that there's it's a kind of end of day scenario at the moment with ash in the sky. So what's what's happening at the moment in California? It, yeah, there is. Um, it's kind of wildfire season, and we've been in the middle of a pretty horrendous heat wave, and then we had a strange summer storm uh, that had a bunch of lightning strikes that ignited wildfires kind of across the state. Um, and so kind of woke up two days ago and there was ash all over everything outside um, and the skies were this strange orange hue and we're also facing potential blackouts because it's so hot everybody has their air conditioning on uh, pushing the grid to its limits so it's very kind of we're kind of on step on standby for blackouts and being rained on by ash so yeah just another day in california all in all in the middle of covid Indeed, exactly. Well, um, well, yeah. I mean, I hope I hope it Im- improves soon. And so, I, I mean, the reason I was excited to to have you on is because I've I, I'm a big podcast fan myself, and um, and your podcast is is we like I was saying, and I'm I, I'm sorry that it's not definitely number one, but I'm being honest. It's either number <laughs> one. It's either number one. That's or, all right. Yeah, it's either number one or number two. Um, it kind of depends what mood you're in, I think, but. Danny in the Valley yeah. is 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 an amazing podcast. Obviously, your your job, your day job, is as the Sunday Times tech correspondent. 
um, yeah. and and you have an associated podcast which is which has achieved achieved huge well it, it considerable success like how would you how would you cat- categorize its success like how, from from your start point in 2017 um that's an interesting question actually so i so just a little bit of background i've been at the paper now for gosh 12 almost 12 years something like that um and i was most of the time in, in london uh, i'm from california originally but i moved to london many moons ago and I convinced them to send me back to California to cover Silicon Valley. Um, this was back at the very end of 2016. Um, and I have been a podcast fan for a long time as well. And when I got back here, I started having conversations, you know, as you do as a journalist, covering stories and writing things up. And I just, it immediately appeared to me that like, you know, a lot of these conversations are so fascinating or so kind of off the wall. Um, I think people would like to hear them beyond just me translating it into like, you know, an 800 word story on the page. Um, So I pitched the idea and it was kind of a kind of shoulder shrug. Why not by the paper? We didn't, at that point, I think we had one podcast, which was Redbox or maybe two, because I think they also had the Ruck, which is about rugby. Um, But there were no business podcasts and it was kind of, a lark, it was cheap, and so they were like, well, okay, sure. Um, and I obviously didn't know what I was doing. Um, and and the paper didn't know what it was doing either. So when we started, we had, like, I think the first episode had, I don't know, in the first week, a th- two or three or 400 listens or something. And that was, like, me putting on an email blast to all my contacts, all my friends and family. Um, so it was pretty desperate. Um, and then since then, it's, it's grown and it's grown, it grows slowly. I'll say that. It's a very gradual thing. You just have to keep doing it. But now we have anywhere from ten to 20,000 listens per week. We've had over a million and a half downloads total. Wow. And this is, you know, and this is for, uh, you know, I just uh, a tech podcast that I'm still kind of doing on the, kind of in a way on the side of my day job. Um, mm. But it is, it's a lot of fun and it's, um, you know, so we've got some good guests who come on and it's kind of continuing to, to gain a following, especially in the UK and weirdly in Australia, um, perhaps because the newspaper has a lot of operations in Australia. We have some sister papers there. Um, so maybe that's how it get, has gotten picked up there. Um, but it's, um, yeah, it's continuing to grow and more and more people know about it. Um, but it's been two and a half years of week in, week out grinding um but yeah it's i still enjoy it uh quite a bit but it's um yeah on on we on we go yeah i think it's interesting it's like it's like a labor of love isn't it it's being creative i guess is in your nature as a journalist so maybe the two are that they're quite naturally linked like how did you how did you get into journalism in the in the first place um, so <laughs> I didn't study journalism, so that's kind of guess the starting point. So I went to use University of California at Santa Barbara, which is a beautiful place to go to university. Yeah. Um, and I studied political science and Spanish and I was, didn't really know. I knew I always wanted to speak Spanish, uh, because there's a lot of Spanish speakers out here and I was always drawn to the language and the culture and political science because I was interested in the world and how it worked and politics and all that stuff. 
but that was kind of the limit of my plan, so to speak. Um, but I write, and so I never did like the school paper. I didn't do any journalism of any kind throughout university until like it was the last semester before I graduated. I was always kind of broadly interested in journalism, but just had no idea how to kind of get into it. Um, and I was also not interested in being poor, <laughs> which uh, journalism isn't the most lucrative industry. So I was just kind of, I was daunted by it. Um, but I was really interested. So I got an internship at a local arts and entertainment newspaper in Santa Barbara. And uh, the first thing I wrote was about, it was like a, what they call a green and blue guide. It was, you know, kind of a supplement around things you can do around Santa Barbara, hiking, biking, rafting, whatever. Mm. And just the simple act of writing something, having it appear on a page and having my byline by it was really thrilling mm. in a way that just kind of hit me like nothing else I had tried before. Um, and so that kind of gave me the bug. And then, but still I was kind of like, well, I don't really know how to turn this into a career. And at the time, this is 99, 2000, um, the dot-com bubble was happening. I'm graduated, moved with some friends to San Francisco, got a dot-com job just because that's what you did um, <laughs> at a ridiculous little company called sparks.com, which they mailed out paper greeting cards. Um, they raised a bunch of money and lo and behold, uh, when the bubble burst, they got no more money and started firing everybody and kind of went down in flames. And I was the kind of last one in, first one out of that company. Um, and that was an opportunity of like, what? so then I was kind of doing temp jobs and just trying to pay rent. Um, and then I'd, I was at a pink slip party. And a pink slip party back then, these were quite uh, popular because so many people were getting fired and laid off that people would organize these events where all these newly fired people would get together and just commiserate and drink and talk about what, you know, what new jobs they might've been hearing about, et cetera. And I was at one of these and I met somebody who's like, you know, they'd asked me what I want to do. I was like, well, I'm, kind of, I'm interested in journalism, but I don't know what to do or how to get in there. And then he told me about a new financial publication that had just got off the ground that was looking for people. And he put me in touch with somebody who put me in touch with the editor who invited me to a pub. Uh, we drank a beer and she offered me a job as an editorial assistant um, writing about, you know, quite intense financial stuff. And that was, I wasn't particularly interested in the finance world, but I was fascinated by having to learn something on the fly, which is a lot of what journalism is about. Mm. And then again, just writing about it and trying to communicate it in a way that was interesting and clear. Uh, and that was the start. There's this little uh, paper which no longer exists called The Daily Deal. It was all about venture capital and private equity and really intense Wall Street stuff and Silicon Valley deals, et cetera. Mm. And that was, that was the beginning, but that was in 2000. I think it was in 2000. So yeah, so I've been at this now for 20 years, which now makes me feel very old. Well, and very professional. <laughs> <laughs> That's another way to look at it. So, so 2008, you joined the, you joined the times. Yeah. So, so I did, so that the the daily deal was a really a training for me because so much was happening. I, I was joined 
just at the tail end of the bubble and as it, and then the bursting of the bubble. So we were a very small staff. The place was based, the paper was based in New York, but we were in a satellite San Francisco office covering Silicon Valley. And so it was a really good training in that you had all of these companies who had raised tons of money and that were going to take over the world. And then the music stopped and then they all just crashed and burned in spectacular fashion. So you got to see, for me, it was a really good education and seeing how kind of market manias take over and how everybody's like, well, yes, of course, this is the way things work. Profits don't matter. Revenues don't matter. It's whatever it may be. And then it all stops and, and it, you know, comes crashing back to earth and covering that and talking to these people who I found quite intimidating, much smarter than me, who were just kind of at a loss. Like it just, it was a lesson in that nobody really knows what they're doing. <laughs> and that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of BS uh, involved in, the, in, in like the markets and, you know, these manias that take off. And it was just really good training. And I did that for two and a half years and started as an editorial assistant, ended up being a, re a reporter um, as I kind of learned how to do it at, on the job. And then I left and moved to Spain. Um, I got a scholarship through the Rotary Foundation, which if you have any young listeners, they should all check it out. The Rotary Club is like, you know, doctors and dentists in your local area. Mm. The Rotary International, the mother organization, has the largest um, what you call it? What's the word that's escaping me? The, the largest it has the largest scholarship uh, program in the world. Okay. And the way it works is the way it works is it, it's specifically targeted at people who have graduated university and then have figured out, okay, I want to do some continuing education to do this as my job or something. And so by that point, I got the bug and I was like, well, I want to be a journalist. I also wanted to move to Europe. I also wanted to get better in Spanish. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Seville and study journalism for the first time in my life, even though I've been by that point a journalist for two years, and kind of solidify my base, my kind of professional base, and live in Europe, which is something I wanted to do. Um, and they, I mean, the first year I applied, they rejected me. Um, the second year I applied, they said yes. So they gave me some money and I moved to Seville, Spain and ended up staying in Spain for two and a half years. Basically, I studied, I started there as a student. I stopped going to classes because they were kind of useless after a few months, but, mm -hmm. but worked as a freelancer for the Daily Deal who had a whole had a London office as well and had European freelancers around and it just happened that when I moved to Spain their Spanish freelancer quit so they knew I was moving to Spain They're like do you want to start working here as like you know sending in copy and stories and I was like great um, so I did that for two and a half years and then um, I was not legal there I got a student visa and overstayed it and had to do some <laughs> Uh, little tricks and whatnot to stay in the country. It's important. Um, yeah, I had to kind of quote unquote lose my passport and get a new one that didn't have the <laughs> dates of when I had come in and all that kind of stuff. Um, and after two and a half years, I was like, well, I can't keep doing this. And then I got a job, a job offer in London at the Daily Deal's London office as a full-time employee and moved to London um, in 2000, I think four, uh, 
and started working at that office and did that for about a year until I got a job at the independent on Sunday. And that was my first job or kind of fleet street as it was. Um, but yeah, the, my first job in the British press. Well, I mean, the, it's interesting. It's, it's unorthodox to make a podcast interviewing someone who makes podcasts talking about how good their podcast is, but that is, that is what we're doing today. And, um, <laughs> I mean, obviously, you, you've you've had a, a, a career in journalism, but it's um, I, I'm not really too too fussed about the strategy of the podcast. But the, the the reason, like I say, it's exciting to talk to you is because the the content that you've produced, which obviously is built on that 20 year experience as as a journalist, it really is it really is fascinating. And um, I mean, in terms of the the ones that stick in stick in my mind are. Say, for example, is, has Bill Gates been a guest on your podcast? He has. So that, that, I remember that episode, although I haven't listened to it recently, but that, that's quite fascinating, isn't it? And then it kind of, especially when you then watch the Netflix documentary that followed up on it. If you, did you yes. see that? Um, yeah, yeah, I did. So, yeah, I mean, even from the beginning, there was a guy called Jason, what was it? Chalcanus. Yeah, that was a really interesting episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, but then more recently, the one that's very fresh in my mind and very current at the moment is is TikTok. So mm. I don't know how, how you would summarize the, the current situation with regards to TikTok and the United States and President Trump. Like, how, how, would, you, how would you summarize that? So, I mean, I think TikTok is a kind of this, it's, you know, there are reasons to be concerned about TikTok but there's a few things going on there. One is, is so in terms of what the data they collect and how they track people, um, they started out doing some things that were a bit outside the pale and that raised some eyebrows in the world of privacy, cybersecurity, et cetera. But, what, but they have since changed that under pressure. And effectively, what they do now is no different than Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, like name your social media app. You know, we're all being tracked in you know, analyzed and our, you know, our time is being sold through advertisers, et cetera. I mean, the difference is that it's just a postcode. You know, this is a Chinese company and there is a law in China that means, that says if the Chinese Communist Party wants access to our data, um, we have to hand that over. Now, TikTok is very adamant that that has never happened, that the Chinese Communist Party has never tried to influence its operations in any way. Um, but, you know, no, effectively nobody believes that, mm-hmm. at least in the, in the cybersecurity government worlds. Everybody just kind of, you know, in China in particular, you serve at the pleasure of the Communist Party. Mm-hmm. You, you play by their mm-hmm. rules. Um, and, this, and they have 800 million people on this app. They're mostly Westerners. They're mostly young people, very young people. Um, And you have this company that has a ton of information on these vulnerable part of the population. And then so so that's one concern. And then the other one is around what, you know, if the Chinese Communist Party or TikTok as a Chinese company has its finger on the scales in terms of what is being, allowed through the funnel and out into the world. So I'm thinking of things like the Hong Kong protests, which while they were really hot and happening, there was virtually, they were virtually impossible to find any videos about that on TikTok. Mm. Yeah. Which 
just feels more than coincidental. Let's say. Yeah. <laughs> and the same thing with the 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 Uyghurs, the, the you know the the million Uyghurs that are being put in concentration camps. There's nothing about that on TikTok. And again, you know, the company will say, "Well, we're not censoring, and neither is the Chinese government." But clearly, something is happening. So there's this fear around, you know, it could be seen as like a, it's kind of like a, a tool for a kind of culture war to put out into the world Chinese views and Chinese values and doing it very subtly kind of one meme at a time. Yeah. And that is, and that, that is the other concern. Um, so that's where it is. And then, and then finally, they're just, you know, there's this trade war going on between the U.S. and China and the West and China. And this is the totemic company. It's the one that everybody knows about. It's the only Chinese company that has made a dent culturally in the West. So it's just sitting there front and center um, in the middle of this trade war. So of course it's going to be a target before you get to any of those other reasons that we just talked about. It's one of these situations where tech kind of in some ways, it's, it's exciting. In a lot of ways, it's exciting, particularly the stories around creation and people mm. gathering momentum and th just the idea that you can, that you can make a business from, from a standing start. Um, so TikTok is a, it's a good example of, of like what, I, what, we, what I've talked about before in terms of like the fear element of tech. Mm. Like there's, there's just an extent to which you can see that it's almost as if the, the, the cynic would say that it's an effort to try and manipulate a population, perhaps, mm. in terms of what it allows, what it promotes, what it doesn't, because the growth with some people in terms of the number of the followers that they've generated and stuff like that is, is staggering, isn't it? And uh, yes. it, so it suggests that their, their algorithms or whatever they're using to promote particular content are maybe different to other platforms. And, and with that comes the potential to, to maybe promote particular content and then manipulate the, the yeah. population. Well, I mean, I think there's a, I mean, you said, uh, you mentioned like, well, it's, a cynic could say that the, the point is to manipulate. I don't think that's cynical. I think that is the business model. And I don't think it's, it's unique. I think the mute motivations and the results of TikTok's manipulation might be unique. But the manip manipulation is not, um, because the whole point of these algorithms is to manipulate your brain into into scrolling and to s never stop scrolling, yeah. And to and it tailors each of these in different ways tailors these experiences specifically to addict you, to keep you going, to keep you looking at ads. So the whole business model of social media is manipulation. And that's what's so fascinating is that it's basically, you know, a grand, an experiment on a grand scale that's never really been attempted before in kind of the history of humanity of unleashing these equations that are basically playing chess against your mind um, to keep you plugged in and to keep you addicted and to make you upset or to make you feel FOMO or to make you happy or to make you sad or whatever it requires to keep you engaged. Um, there's never been anything like this before that's been being delivered in this way. And it is a massive experiment and that's why, uh, you know, one of the many reasons 
I really enjoy my job is that we're watching this experiment play out in real time and all of these results and unexpected consequences that are happening. I mean, it's, it's a daily, it's a daily revelation uh, in this kind of, this new manipulation business model that's really powerful and everywhere. So th this is one of the reasons that I was excited to talk to you. So a, a couple of things come to mind, I guess. Firstly, it makes me want to know what, what you're working on right now, like what's happening today and this week in, in, your, in, the, world of, uh, in the world of tech from your perspective. And, and also, I mean, it's a slightly different question, but that point that you just made about, about the, the, the path that we're on, it's in lots of respects, it, it's quite concerning I would suggest, you know, it's quite, it's going quite a long way away from how humans have evolved to live. And I guess you're kind of, in some respects, at the epicenter of that. And, you know, does that f fill you with fear or excitement or a mixture of both? A mixture of both. I mean, as a journalist, you kind of, you're either naturally cynical, which draws you to the industry or, which I think is mostly true but then also the more you work in the industry and see how things work the more cynical you get um so it is i am fearful um because i know a lot of people who work in these companies and um they st in many respects still operate as startups the, the still the operating principles are still very much just build it whatever it may be get it out into the world your minimal minimal viable Minimum viable product, your MVP. Just get it out there, throw it out there, and then we'll figure out all the difficult stuff and all the complexities after. And that's when you get election manipulation and you get fomenting of genocide in the country halfway around the world and all of these things. Uh, and it's, and the, the most incredible part is that it doesn't feel like, even as these horrendous uh, side effects of social media, are playing out in front of our eyes. There is not a fundamental shift within the leadership of these companies of like, ooh, we need to be more careful. Yeah. We need to approach this in a different way. That is not happening. Because if you look at the stock prices and if you look at the profits, they keep going in one direction. And it's kind of like, well, if this thing has worked in the past and got us here, we're just going to keep doing this. Uh, so that is quite... Uh, depressing and that I don't feel like there's a kind of a, a light bulb moment that is happening where you have these companies being like, you know what, this is, these things are really powerful. We have to just approach this in a completely different way. We have to rethink how we do business. That is not happening. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there are, there are some really cool things happening. Um, you know, in the industry, I mean, it's, it's Silicon Valley is a lot of things and there's a lot of cliches about this place and they're kind of, they're all true to one degree or another, but there is this, uh, the, which I found different to, from my time in the UK, um, this sense that you can change the world and it's an unironic sense. And sometimes you roll your eyes when you talk to people, you're like, oh, okay, all right, here we go again. Um, but the, the truth is it's happened several times and continues to happen. You know, it's where, you know, <laughs> Elon Musk's been working on Tesla for 17 years. Mm. And he said back then, 
I'm going to create, you know, I'm basically going to relegate the internal combustion engine to the dustbin of history. This is how I'm going to do it. And this is when they had one crappy little roadster and were, you know, a month away from bankruptcy. And they continue to do that for 15 years until they finally have, you know, figured it out and they are where they are now. But whether that's with the internet and the browsers and then the invention of the iPhone, and smartphone revolution, all these things. I remember interviewing uh, for the podcast, actually, a really thoughtful venture capitalist, a guy called John Callahan. He's like, the reason people keep making bets out here and go, you know, going, you know, taking big swings is that they've seen it happen before. Mm. So there's this whole myth machine that most people get entranced by and fail or don't meet, you know, reach their dreams or don't change the world. But it's real enough that it draws really extraordinary people out here. And there's a whole ecosystem to support them and to be like, you know, in the UK, if you have an idea, we'll give you 5 million quid. And the kind of operating principle is don't mess up. Don't lose my money. Whereas here, it's like, we'll give you $50 million, take over the world. And so that's, those starting points are just so dramatically different and the scale of ambition is dramatically different. So it is really exciting because you do see some cool, very cool stuff come out of that. So you touched, you touched there on the, on the share price of some of these big companies and it's quite topical in that, in that today mm. Apple's market cap has breached two, $2 trillion, um, which I think makes it the first, the first publicly listed yeah. Um, company to do so and it it's in some ways Apple's pre performed particularly well in the last couple of uh, weeks or months of this crisis because because of the strength of its hardware business apparently um, but equally uh, the other technology companies you know Microsoft Alphabet um, Aramco have have also done particularly well so what are your what are your thoughts on that and the, the kind of incredible growth that these companies have gone through since the COVID crash, which obviously happened around about the kind of March, April time? Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple principle of the rich get richer. When the proverbial hits the fan, the rich get richer. Um, and especially in the case of, say, you know, Facebook or Google, YouTube, you know, the alphabet kind of universe, um, you know, in many ways, they are more vital than ever because the kind of the brick and mortar world is half shut down or people don't feel safe. Um, and I was just interviewing a guy for a pod for the pod this week who's building a direct consumer brand. He's done it exclusively via Facebook and Instagram ads and it, and a well-placed influencer in his world, which is fitness. They found an influencer who has 30 million followers. She promotes their product. And just between Facebook ads, Instagram ads, and her, they've built this huge business that's profitable and growing very quickly. And I was talking to him, I was like, well, how does Facebook figure into like, you know, how powerful is it? He's like, we don't have a business without Facebook because wow. that's where people are. Um, and it really is, you know, there's been news about this ad boycott of Facebook, uh, of all these big brands who are like, you know, we don't want our stuff running next to Nazi propaganda and all these horrendous things. Um, you've had a thousand big brands, Unilever to all the way on down to, I think it was North Face and a bunch of others. Um, 
Yet in that same three month period where that took hold, Facebook added a million uh, advertisers to its network. Has, now has nine million advertisers. Most of them are small businesses mm. because a lot of them have no other option to reach people, to target to targeted audiences the way that Facebook offers, especially in times when they can't do what they normally do. Uh, so it's just kind of a crystallization of these factors that have been working for a while and now it's just kind of really uh, exacerbating that, um, which if you're an investor in Facebook or Apple, and Apple, same thing, it's, it's, it is about the hardware, but it's really about much of the rallies about its software, the app store, you know, the 30% cut it takes for any app that sells anything on the store. It has 2 million apps. Again, people are living through their phones now more than ever. And the app store is the heart of its service business. It's services business, which is all these like software that is packed into the phone, iTunes, iCloud, the app store, all of that software, what it's done is turn every iPhone into a cash machine yeah. for Apple. So now they're bringing in $50 billion just for the services that are built into your phone, you know, the transactions that you make on your phone, which if you just extracted the app store would be like, you know, it would be a fortune 100 company just on based on revenue. I mean, it's a huge thing. That's why this company is worth 2 trillion because they have this little thing that, you know, even a few years ago was, a nice to have, but was kind of not that interesting. All of a sudden you have a fortune 100 company wrapped inside a $2 trillion behemoth. So in terms, in terms of the people you, you, you know, you've met some of the, some of the, the biggest names in these industries mm. that have facilitated this incredible growth. And the thing that comes to mind, like particularly just from my own personal perspective, it, I just, you can't help but think like, what, what is it that these people want and what do they see the end game as? Like you, you've met some of, you, you mentioned you've met mm. Bill Gates. Jeff Bezos is another interesting example. You know, the, the wealth mm. that he's accumulating and the growth of Amazon. Like what, I guess, I mean, America is a very different country in terms of its, yes. its, its support for capitalism as, as just as a model and that wealth creation belongs to the owner. And, but you can't help but think, like, wh where is this going? Yeah. And, you know, it's, I, I don't know if anybody, I mean, I think, I think some of the, like, the top people, they do have some pretty starry-eyed visions of where this goes. Um, particularly if you're talking about Jeff Bezos um, and Elon Musk, I mean, they want to colonize outer space. And that sounds totally ridiculous, but that is a key priority, a top priority for both of these people who are two of the five richest people on earth. Mm. Uh, and they're spending their money to do it because they think, you know, um, whether it's climate change or the rise of a super, you know, AGI, artificial general intelligence, that's going to kind of turn us into serfs. Um, they think that we need to set up shop out in the galaxy, <laughs> which is kind of, it's again, these are two people, these are just individuals, but they're building rockets and building space tourism companies and, you know, lunar landers. And Jeff Bezos in particular, he wants to, 
he's talking about building big giant floating colonies, giant space structures in floating through outer space. And they're serious. They're dead serious about it. Um, because I think they take these, again, it goes back to this, like, well, you know, they have changed the world mm. in ways, um, good and bad. So there is no, there's no break on their ambition to, you know, about what they're going to do next or what they're going to do with all this money that they have now generated. Um, there is no break on the ambition um, here. And it starts with the early startups. And then for those who make it, like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, he started the um, Chan Zuckerberg Foundation, his, um, his nonprofit. And the goal was to eliminate all disease, which again, feels like something out of Silicon Valley, you know, the TV series. It's like, oh yeah, I'm gonna use my money to eliminate all disease and pestilence on planet Earth, which <laughs> in the history of humanity has never even, you know, which obviously has not happened. But again, it's just, you get these, um, these otherworldly ambitions, which are born of the few people who start out with those and actually realize them. You're like, oh, okay, well, I've now created a social network that is used by a third of the planet. Getting rid of all diseases doesn't seem like that big of an ask. Um, but it's really, it's quite extraordinary. Just, you know, the, the, the success kind of breeds this almost godlike uh, ethos amongst these, these guys that they can't, there's nothing that they can't do. And, you know, it's awe-inspiring. It's also very scary. Um, but I think the whole, what's going to be interesting over these next few years is just the antitrust, the crackdown that is clearly coming on these big tech companies, kind of, you know, bring them back to earth, so to speak, and how that plays out. Um, but I do think there is a recognition that there is so much wealth and power in so few hands now that there needs to be a rebalancing. Well, what was, what was clear from the recent hearings, and I'm not sure you might have to remind me of the, the political structure, whether it was Congress, mm -hmm. were, were they, they were, they were called. It was to, Congress. Yeah. 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 So I just watched like a few minutes of that and then I couldn't, to be honest, I couldn't take, I couldn't take any more because they, it just kind of seemed like the people who were talking to them just really didn't know what they were talking about. I don't know if it was that. If well, that me. yeah. So I would say the Congress is getting better. Like when they had uh, Zuckerberg after um, Cambridge Analytica, when they brought him before Congress and questioned yeah. him for hours, there was a lot of kind of IT guy type questions. Like, you know, how does, how do you make money, sir? It's like, it's very, yeah. you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff where it was very kind of like, you know, my printer stopped working. Did you try jiggling the cable? Kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas this time, I think there has been multiple investigations going on for anywhere from 12 to 18 months. You have these congressmen who have staffs have been digging through millions of documents that they've produced as part of these investigations. So the education that just the knowledge level and the understanding of how these businesses work has dramatically improved. It's never going to be perhaps where you'd want it to be for, um, for the people who are supposed to kind of bring these guys to heel, but it is much better 
which is why I do have some faith that whatever the crackdown will be, there will be some there will be some teeth to it, and it will be more intelligent. Um, I'm hoping than some others have been, just because they spent, there's a lot of people, a lot of smart people, have spent a lot of time looking, like digging through the kind of the crates of these companies and really understanding their power and how they exert it and where those are, where the problems arise. So it'll be really interesting, but I think we're probably going to hear quite soon about um, how they plan, what the plan is to kind of bring these guys back to earth. Do you have any inclination or thought about how that might work? Uh, The short answer is no. I mean, well, I will say, if you look at history, like Microsoft was ordered to break up, uh, to be broken up, I think it was in finally, in, perhaps it was 99. Yeah. Uh, but we had, we had Brad Smith on the podcast, who's the president of Microsoft. And he basically, he's the lead lawyer for the company and has been for almost 30 years. So, and he said 27, he spent 27 years fighting the government. Um, specifically over antitrust issues. Um, and the last bit of it was only settled, you know, a few years ago. And Microsoft is on its way to $2 trillion. Now, the company has changed dramatically, and there's a lot of people who argue that the distraction of fending off a breakup by the federal government opened the way for people like Google to kind of blossom. Mm. Um, but I guess the point is, you know, these, they're, Amazon and, and Facebook employ more lobbyists each than there are sitting U.S. senators. <laughs> this is not going to, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, okay, great, we'll just break ourselves up or we'll undo Instagram or, you know, Amazon, whatever they end up trying to force them to do. It's that, so I think this is going to be a years-long, very expensive legal bonanza, and it's I'll say is I don't know how it'll turn out, but I know it's going to be a, like an epic fight that goes on, that drags on for years. I guess the question is, is what does that do to the competitive landscape? Does it force these companies to take their eye off the ball? Does it open the way for others to kind of squeak in and make some noise in their respective industries? That, that'll be interesting, but I just think Certainly, it's going to be harder for these companies to buy competitors, um, which is a big thing. So that alone um, will be interesting to see how it plays out. But how it actually, like what the shape of it, I don't think, truly, I don't think we'll know for decades. Mm. Yeah, and, and in terms of acquisitions, I mean, Facebook's acquisition of, of WhatsApp and then Instagram are kind of the two to like, well, amazing acquisitions and great examples of, of Facebook's kind of maneuvers to, to dominate, you know, and the, the growth yeah. that then happened of, in, of Instagram and is still ongoing of Instagram. I mean, I haven't checked it recently, but it was the fastest growing platform for some time, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it, I guess that would be one significant change, but yeah, it's interesting to, to think that Microsoft have already been through this process some some years ago when they went through that phenomenal period of growth. But something seems slightly different this time in terms of um, the nature of online of 
Microsoft was essentially, you know, a, a software business where it had to be installed on your machine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas now these businesses are kind of purely application based. So mm. it's, it just seems like a, a slightly different time whereby the growth is almost unstoppable. Yeah, it, it, it's very different insofar for a couple of reasons. One, everybody has a smartphone now. Um, it's, we're not far from the point where literally every person, every adult on the planet has a smartphone because even in places like India, you can get a smartphone for, you know, 50 quid or 30 quid or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, and so because everybody has a smartphone, the barriers to just global growth domination, whatever you want to call it, are effectively nil. Um, that's taking aside the, the considerations around the splitting of the internet between like the Chinese internet and there's kind of net nationalism, which is rising, which is, which we're seeing now, obviously with the, the, the backlash against TikTok, et cetera. But everybody's got a, a, a smartphone. And then the other thing is that as a platform, once you build the platform, it's, there's zero marginal cost as you grow users. So once you start, once you kind of get those viral growth effects, it's just pure profit. Um, it's not like you have to build more railroad ties or pump more oil. I mean, you have to build more data centers, but those are relative to what you're bringing in, mm -hmm. you know, a rounding error. So that's why the concentration of, the, of power in a few hands is so, is so vast. Yeah. Fascinating. So, Danny, if, um, what, in terms of what you're working on at the moment, what have, what have you got on the horizon? What's, what's taking your interest right now? Uh, I would say two, two kind of themes just at the moment. Um, one is obviously TikTok, um, but specifically looking at um, TikTok as the world's largest social network for kids. So I don't know if you saw there's recent reports based on internal TikTok documents that estimated that up to a third of its U.S. users were under the age of 14 and campaigners have found accounts for kids as young as four years old and there's a whole huge issue around kind of what social media is doing to children and this is very problematic and TikTok is the first to really attract kids in this way in such vast numbers and kids aren't developmentally really able to deal with you know the complexities of living online let alone like what should be private, what shouldn't. There's online predators. There's all kinds of issues around having millions of kids basically operating unfettered on the internet, on social media in particular. And so and TikTok is the first company to really have a problem of this scale. And I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be a huge issue for this company and for whomever ends up buying it because it's a large portion of their users. And they're not being looked after. And I kind of think about it, if you think about the physical world, kids, you know, there's the little kids playground, there's the bigger kids playground, then there's the rest of the world. There's no, there's no delineation here, broadly speaking, online. You know, if you're on TikTok, you're watching TikTok with everybody else. Um, and there's a youth version, but very few people use it as far as we can tell. So they're just on there out in this adult world as children, Child's developing minds, and I think that's 
a serious, serious problem. So that's one thing I'm looking at. Um, and then the other is facial recognition technology. Um, that again is being rolled out everywhere, including in London by the Met Police, uh, is being used today. Um, and facial recognition tech is, is problematic uh, because it's most of the training data that is used to kind of sharpen the out white male faces. And so when it's put out into the world, it finds that like, you know, it's very bad at identifying women and women of color and people of color. And so you have Amazon and Microsoft and all these companies, they just came out recently and said, okay, we're going to take a pause on this until we have some, until the government's regulates more properly, but it's already out there and being used by law enforcement. And some of these algorithms, while they might be 99% accurate for white men, can be up to 100 times less accurate or get it wrong like, you know, three or seven or eight times out of 10 for people of color and women of color. And they're being used to arrest people and to make, you know, um, kind of life and death decisions. So I think, and it's just another example of, you know, this experiment playing out in real time um, out there in the world. And I think there's going to be some really terrible outcomes from that. So that's the other thing I'm kind of in the background that's just been bubbling that I've been looking into. So if, if people wanted to, wanted to keep up with you, Danny, and they can, obviously they can listen to your podcast, but where else, where else can they find you to keep up with your activities? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on Twitter at, at Danny Fortson, Danny, F-O-R-T-S-O-N. I must admit, I'm not like a, I don't do a ton of tweeting, but I am on there. Uh, I'll tweet out stories every once in a while um, and various other things. So I am there. Um, and then, of course, at thetimes.co.uk, you can search for my stuff or just buy the paper, which is always helpful. Um, but, yeah, I'm kind of generally out there and around and online, um, not too hard to find. Although there is somebody else named Danny Fortson who was born the same year as me, who was a professional basketball player. He's now retired. That's <laughs> so kind of messed up my internet search results in that anytime search, if you search for Danny Fortson, uh, you'll come up with somebody who looks nothing like me and who is far more wealthy than I am, but you know, such is life. <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah, still worth, I would just suggest that people persevere through that, through that challenge and, um, and, and certainly, <laughs> and certainly track down the, um, track down the podcast. I mean, like I said at the beginning, it's, slightly unorthodox um to, to have someone on who who makes a podcast but i it when you're trying to you know maybe build your own or whatever but i think for me it's just about doing stuff that you that you believe in that you find interesting and exciting and i've listened to not every single one of your podcasts but most of them i would say yeah. and i just i really really enjoy them um i think the medium of audio in terms of learning and uh, whilst being able to do other stuff and just the, the, the way that the brain processes it is, is fantastic. Like I'm, I'm a huge believer in it. So um, I would suggest. Yeah, I agree. And I would just say just about uh, on the podcast, given that you're um, doing one and you know, you're kind of in the f first few months of it. Um, the, the thing that I spend the most time on for the podcast is tracking down the people 
that are good talkers that are because out here there's a lot of people doing amazing stuff mm. there's no shortage of brilliant minds what there is a shortage of is people doing interesting stuff who can actually speak about it in a human way because to your point audio is a really powerful medium but people gotta people have to be relatable they have to be able to speak clearly and and all these type of things and i think um, it's really important to find people who are, can speak about stuff in an engaging way because otherwise, um, if you don't have that in audio, that's death because um, things can be boring very quickly, and especially if there's no visuals there. So I would say that I just kind of I follow my nose a bit and just find the people I'm interested in that, that I think are doing interesting things. and and try to zero in on the people who can actually speak about it in ways that are really interesting uh, and engage it. And um, I'm, glad, I'm glad to hear that um, you like it. That's gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, uh, yeah, and the, review, the reviews don't lie either. So, um, so no, yeah. congratulations. And, uh, and I, hope, I, hope things, I hope things return to normal in, in California quickly. And, and I suggest everyone checks out Danny in the Valley, the podcast, and find uh, uh, Danny Fortson on Twitter and other platforms. And um, and Danny, thanks thanks a lot for the, for taking the time. I really really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. So there we have it. Uh, very grateful to Danny for taking time. I found I really enjoyed talking to him. I could talk to him for a very long time, and uh, and enjoyed enjoyed everything that he he had to share. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I recommend checking out his, his podcast, Danny in the Valley. Please do check out the, the podcast on social media. I'm keen. I enjoy getting feedback from people. But in the, in the coming episodes, we've got some really interesting, cool people lined up. Um, one person who has set up and launched their own restaurant on more than one occasion. So that's an interesting business that uh, we haven't talked about at all. Another person who is running a startup in the world of responsible laundry which sounds odd but when you when you get into the detail of it it's it makes a lot of sense and it's pretty cool uh, and also a, a career entrepreneur who uh, takes great pride in the fact that he's never been employed since the day he he left the army which i i, I personally am a fan of that so some interesting episodes coming up thanks a lot for listening and yeah, please get in touch if you have any feedback, good or bad. We're, we're ready for it.